Thanks, Brent. Well, um, really quickly here, um, what happens to prepare stays to prepare. Can we all agree to that? All right. So it was actually Thursday night we had dinner. We had a pastor's dinner with all the Salt Network pastors, and my wife and I were seated next to Brent and Carrie, and we were talking just about how God got us to Des Moines or to Ankeny and part of the Salt Network. And so Brent shared, he said, really, I really felt like back in the day that God was going to call us to be missionaries either in China or Japan. And so he said, I really love China and Japan. He said, I was just there in April. And here's what happened. He began to pronounce food and cities in Japan as if he was Japanese. All right, so get this. My name is Iki. That's how most people say it. But in Japanese, my real name is Iki. That's how you pronounce it. But I just say Iki because people don't want to say Iki. Brent was like, Iki, like saying all this stuff, you know? And so here's the thing. When I was on staff at a very large, predominantly white church as their college young adults pastor, people say, you're a banana. And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you're yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. <laughs> when I was on staff with Dr. Tony Evans at Oakland Bible Fellowship, one of the largest black churches in America, they said, you're like a rotten banana, yellow on the outside, but black on the inside. <laughs> So Brent and Carrie, you know what you all are? You're an egg, white on the outside, but yellow on the inside. I think you might be Japanese, yeah. Uh, and the other thing that we share is that we both ministered in Texas, so again, it's good to be here with a fellow former Texan who's now here in Iowa. Um, quick question, I see you around the room as I look around, some of you are wearing your snow boots, but. Some of y'all are wearing shoes with laces on them like I am. How many of you all, as you all were tying your shoes before you were coming here tonight, prayed to God saying, God, would you now help me tie my shoes? Anybody pray that prayer like before tying your shoes at all? Anybody? All right, I see some jackets in the room. Did anybody here, as you put on your nice heavy coat, your nice winter jacket with your nice hoodie on top, did you pray, Lord, would you help me now to zip up this jacket? Anybody pray that prayer before they did that at all? Now, this would have been original and true if it had not snowed so much last night and today. But most of us, when we drive to work or school, we don't pray, God, now help me get to work safely. Now, tonight you may have prayed, help me get to Keystone safely. My wife and I, I know we did, because I'm sitting there like, we got stuck in the parking lot at Cottage Grove on the way here, so I had to push the car, and then I let my wife drive, and the whole time I'm like, Lord, please get us to Keystone safely, please, please. But normally we don't pray when we go to work or we come to Keystone or go to school, because here's a concept I wanna share with you, because the things that we have the ability to do, we say, I'll take care of it. If you have the ability to tie your shoes, you say, I'll take care of it. If you say, I've got the ability on my own to zip up my jacket, take care of it. I've got the ability to drive my car, I'll take care of it. And often where prayer starts for many of us, if not all of us, is where our ability runs out and we have to now say, I'm unable, I have inability, so now I have to look to somebody else who is greater than me to make up the difference, to do something. Now, here's the question I ask, though. That person obviously is God. Matthew 19, 26, it says, with humans or with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God can do anything. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The only thing he can't do, he can't lie, he can't sin. But beyond that, God 
can do it. And what we often think is this, okay, God, I'm unable to do this. I have the inability and you're completely able. As Kirk Franklin used to sing, he's able. You're completely able to do it. But rather than praying these great prayers, trusting God to do it, we limit those prayers and we pray nice, safe prayers or very general prayers because of this. And I just want to just reinforce this with you. Read the Psalms. God can handle your disappointments. God can handle you being disappointed with him. God doesn't stop being God when you're disappointed with him. And I think often the reason why we don't pray these prayers when our ability runs out is because we don't really believe God is totally able or even if he is able, we say in our minds, you know what? But if I pray this prayer and it doesn't come to pass, I'm gonna be disappointed and I don't wanna be disappointed with God. Or we pray these general safe prayers so that we don't even know if God even answered those prayers. But what I wanna look at tonight is this. I wanna look at from Acts chapter 12, out of your mind prayers. Mind blowing out of your mind prayers from Acts chapter 12. And these are the prayers I believe if we believe that God is able, he's able, he, he can do anything. If we really believe that, these are the types of prayers that we're gonna pray. So turn me to Acts chapter 12. And I'll be reading from uh, looking at the English Standard Version of the Greek translation of the New Testament. In Acts 12, I'll give you the context as you turn there. Acts chapter 12 is occurring in the spring of 44 AD. The reason why I love Luke and Acts is because they're both historical records. And so this is the spring of 44 AD. Now we're kind of going backwards because the end of chapter 11 actually is 46 AD when there's a famine in Jerusalem. So this is almost like a flashback. Luke is writing this saying, here's the activity of the Holy Spirit in the church, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of famine. Here's what God is doing. And he says, but flashback, let's look at this instance of what happens with Herod Agrippa. So verse one says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Why did he do this? Because he knew at the time the Jews were opposed to these new Jewish Christians, these Messianic Christians who were preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So it was more of a political move, a popularity move than really a philosophical or religious move. Verse two, he killed James, a brother of John, with the sword. This is the only instance in the whole Bible where we see one of the apostles recorded as being martyred or killed. Verse three, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, one of the other apostles. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So there are three Jewish feasts. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which occurs for the seven days after Passover. Passover again is generally in the spring. So this is the spring of 44 AD. He arrests Peter with the intent of, man, if they were cheering for me and hollering for me when I killed James, imagine what they're gonna do when I arrest and then kill Peter. Verse four, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Look at verse six. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, not the wrapper, but bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So get this, 
It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jews have gathered there in Jerusalem. And what they see is they see James, one of the apostles who's been preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Christ, and the Jews are opposed to that. So what does Herod do? And Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great. He is a Jewish king. He kills, he martyrs James. And what happens? The Jews there in the city celebrate. And he says, man, if my popularity, and the, the evening news that night probably said, and now popularity and effectiveness, like his, his percentage has gone up amongst the Jewish people population. He's probably like, man, if I get Peter and kill him, imagine what that'll do for my popularity. So he arrests him, puts him in prison. Now get this. Four squads. A squad is four soldiers. What's four times four? All right, not just Asians are good at math. Y'all are good at math too, all right? That's good. <laughs> 16 soldiers to guard this one man. Now get this. These four squads take six-hour shifts. That's why there's four squads of four. They take six-hour shifts. He is in prison, and the two chains, he has a chain on his left, a chain on his right. He's got a soldier he's chained to on his right and a soldier on his left, and there's two other soldiers guarding the cell door. All right, so there is absolutely, from a physical perspective, God does, unless God does something, that Peter is going to escape. Are y'all with me? Four sets of four, round the clock being guarded, soldier on his left, soldier on his right, two guards outside the doors. There is no physical way that he is going to get out. Um, I don't know if you saw uh, in Las Vegas, a courtroom. Did you see on the news, there's that judge who was handing down the sentencing to that guy, and as she's pronouncing the sentence, the guy runs, jumps over the bench, and then Dexter, did you all see that? Did y'all see that? Did you see the follow-up story to that, though? So I think two days ago or a day ago, they continued the sentencing. This time, when they brought that dude out, the defendant out, because they said, what was the security like? And where are the officers? Where are the deputies? This time, right, they had eight officers on him. They had an officer on his left, on his right. They had another one behind him on the right here, one behind him. They had two at the door, and they had two right next to him behind the desk as well. They had eight officers guarding this guy. They had him chained up, mouth covered as well. There was no way this guy was going to get back at that judge, right? Amen? And that is what Peter is facing. And so he is going to spend a night in prison the next morning, most likely, he's going to be brought before, and this is what's called the uh, prison of Antonia. It's on the north side of the temple along the wall. He's going to be brought out before the people, and they're probably going to say, Agrippa's going to say, what do you want me to do with him? They're going to say, kill him, kill him, off with his head, martyr him, slaughter him. And he will martyr him, and he'll hear the cheer and the raucous applause of the people. But I love this. Look at verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, underline that word earnest. Earnest prayer for him was made to God, not to the pastor, not to the elders, but to God by the church. That word earnest, why I had you underline it in the Greek, it means to stretch or to flex. It means to stretch or to flex. So this was not the cute little prayer that you say before you eat, maybe a quick bedtime prayer that you just ritualistically do. This is, imagine working out. Imagine the hardest workout you've ever had. If you played football in high school, or maybe you worked out today. The hardest workout you've ever had. Maybe you've climbed a mountain. He says, this took effort. The people gathered and they flexed their prayer muscles. They begged God and they stretched themselves. 
And here's the thing about uh, uh, working out. What's true of your physical body as you work out regularly and you do things regularly like your muscles grow, you can build those muscles. You get in better shape. And if you want to get in better spiritual shape, you have to flex your prayer muscles. You have to stretch. And he says, that's what the church did. So here's my first point is this. Out of the question circumstances call for out of your mind prayers. Out of the question impossible circumstances. So Peter, the apostle, the leader of the church at Jerusalem is bound Chain on his left, chain on his right. Two soldiers, soldiers guarding the door, two of them, round the clock, 24 hours a day. Overnight, he'll sleep, and the next morning, he will most likely be executed. This is an impossible situation. So the church, they gathered together, and they didn't just pray cute little prayers. God bless Peter. God do this and bless and bless and bless. They prayed specifically and said, God, you may disappoint us, but we're praying that you would have him released. Now, here's the thing. It's the mystery of sovereignty. Because here in chapter 12, we see James, the other apostle, was martyred. And I'm sure the church prayed for him as well. God, would you release him? And yet what happened? God allowed James to be martyred. And yet even with that, the people begged God. They flexed their prayer muscles and said, God, we're begging you and asking you to see Peter released. So again, first point again is out of the question circumstances call for out of your mind prayers. Continue with me on verse six again, verse six. He says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Look at verse seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, this is Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the two guards woke up. Is that what the text says? No, he says, the chains fell off his hands, and the two guards who were chained to Peter didn't wake up. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, uh, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. Has God ever done something in your life where you are literally pinching yourself because you're like, I must be dreaming? He says, that's what's going on here. Peter, knowing the next day he's most likely going to be executed, he's going to be martyred, is now in this foggy, like half awake state because an angel punches him in the side and he's like, man, my chains are gone. And he's now walking out saying, I must be dreaming. This can't be true. Two guards at the door, two guards on my side, and I'm walking out of prison? Look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, so these men are awake, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. So here's the thing. Next time you go to Hy-Vee, next time you go to Hy-Vee or Price Shopper and those doors open automatically, that's what happened. He says, here are these large iron gates in this prison who are keeping all the inmates inside. And like a Hy-Vee grocery store target, he says he walked and, and they open up on their own accord. And then he says this, uh, and they went out and went along the street and immediately the angel left him. So as soon as he got out, the angel left him 
Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he says, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So he goes from this dream state of pinching himself to now waking up saying, man, God did this. He used this angel to get me out. Here's point number two. Point number two is this. God answers out of your mind prayers. God answers out of your mind prayers. It wasn't the angel that got him out. It was the people of God praying to God. And God says, you know what? I'm gonna send an angel. And again, it's the mystery of prayer. We just went through Daniel at Cotter's Grove this past fall. And we see a glimpse into the heavenlies. And there's a moment when Daniel is praying and then Gabriel the archangel says, Daniel, the moment you started praying, God says, you go, you go. And so we don't understand that mystery, but he says, as these people were praying and begging God to see Peter released, this angel comes, chains fall off, and he walks out of this prison. So God answers out of your mind prayers. Now here's a thought. We sing the song, do it again. God, if you did it for them, do it again. And often we look at the book of Acts as if it was something that happened like 2,000 years ago, but now we're in this church today. We've got all this technology and we've got websites and we've got social media. Does God still do that today? Here's a question. Is the Holy Spirit in Acts the same Holy Spirit today? Is the God of back then still the God of today? Does Jesus change or is Jesus still the same yesterday, today, and forever? He's the same Jesus. And so here's the thing. There's a story I read uh, a while back. There's a book called Heavenly Man. It's by Brother Yun. He was a pastor in China. And you've probably heard of this, Brent and Kerry. He was a pastor in China. And there is the state church and there's the underground church. And the underground church is heavily persecuted. And so he was a pastor in this underground church. And in March of 1997, he is meeting in a house church on the second floor of this home. The Chinese police, the federal police come and they come to arrest these people. This is what Brother Yun does. To escape these police who've tried to break up this church gathering, he jumps out of a second story window. Upon landing to the street, he breaks his legs. They catch him, even though he's got broken legs. This is not like prison in America where they take you to the hospital and have like a police officer outside your door. They beat him even more. They take him to the prison uh, Hu Zhang, I think was the name of the prison. They take him, it is a maximum security prison in which no inmate has ever escaped. So this is March of 1997. His legs are so brutally broken that inmates have to carry him even to the bathroom and to the cafeteria because he can't walk. In May of 1997, he's asleep and he hears the voice of God. The Holy Spirit says to him, get up and leave. Now, this is a maximum security prison, and the Spirit tells him, get up to leave. And so he goes, and he finds that his cell door is open. He walks through the door, and he tells the story. Again, let me clarify. I don't think it was at night. I think it was during the day. But the Spirit tells him, get up and leave. The cell door is open. He says he walked by prison guards as if he was invisible, you know, the video games like Mario Kart and all that stuff and Mario, like he literally turned invisible. They couldn't see him. He said, I walked out and he walked through five doors and gates, secure doors and gates, just walk right through them. They were open for him. He walked past the guards as if he was invisible. And he said at this prison, it was a shoot to kill orders. If they saw an inmate escaping, they were ordered to shoot and kill that inmate. The final gate out of the prison, he gets out 
And lo and behold, there is a taxi cab there at the gate. He gets in and the guy says, where to? And there is a house, a Christian home that has, I guess, refugees or Christians who are uh, being persecuted. And he says, take me to that house. And the couple at that house said this, just last night, we had a dream that you were gonna come to our house and we're gonna provide refuge for you. So friends, what happened here in Acts 12 still happens today. It does. So here's the last part as we wrap up. Look at verse um, 12, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John. So this is uh, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark, the one who abandoned Paul. This is a writer of the gospel, Mark. He says, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I would suggest this is the same group of people that was in Acts chapter 12, verse five. It says they were praying earnestly. They were flexing their prayer muscles. So he says, I'm gonna go to this house where the people had been praying. Verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda, that word means Rose, the name means Rose or little Rose, came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So picture this. They've been praying for Peter to be released. Knocks at the door. Rhoda comes to the door, and she says, who is it? And he says, it's Peter. And she says, oh, that's his voice. It's him. She's overjoyed, so she runs back into the house where the people are praying. And he says this in verse um, 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. The Greek word there, uh, it's spelled like the city of, uh, state of Maine, but it's pronounced mine. And it's the English word that we get maniac or maniacal. Crazy. They say to her, Rhoda, you are a maniac. You're crazy. You're a lunatic. That can't be. Now picture this, y'all, picture this. They've been praying, and maybe even fasting as well, they've been praying for Peter to be released from prison. Rhoda comes to them and says, hey, y'all, because she's from Texas, hey, y'all, guess what? <laughs> Peter's at the front door, at the gate. And they say to her, you are out of your mind. You are a lunatic, you're crazy. And this is what they say. He says, you're in my mind. Uh, verse uh, uh, 15 there in the middle. But she kept insisting, no, it's Peter, that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. That word angel, angelos, means messenger. They said, no, 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 it's not Peter. It's one of his homeboys that maybe visited him in prison and now has come to us to report what's going on in prison. Just like they had that with John the Baptist. He's, he's a messenger. Or they also believe, perhaps, that Peter's already been martyred. He's already been killed, and it is literally his, like, angel that has come, the one that watches over. Hebrews 1 says that there is an, we call them guardian angels, those who inherit uh, in salvation. He says there's an angel that watches over those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews chapter 1. He said it's his angel. It's not Peter. There's a rational explanation for this, Rhoda. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. That Greek word there, amazed, is literally two words, out, like to go out, out and stand. 
out and stand, and we would call it like outstanding, is probably the English equivalent, but really it's like um, when something incredible happens and like you give them a standing ovation because you're so impressed or amazed, that's the picture here. He said, this group of believers that were praying were now outstanding at what God did. Verse 17, but motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And he departed and went to another place. So here's what happens when God answers out of your mind prayers, we have to testify and tell others about it. Not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God. Here's point number three. But do we believe that he answers out of your mind prayers? So God answers out of your mind prayers. God does. We see that right here in the text. But the question isn't, does God answer out of your mind prayers? The question is this. Do you personally, collectively, individually believe that God answers out of your mind prayers? Mind-blowing, outstanding prayers. Do you believe God answers those prayers? Because here are these believers who are experiencing persecution, who are huddling in this home, praying, flexing their prayer muscles, begging God, pleading with God. And when God answers their outer mind prayers, they call Rhoda, who says, God answered our prayer. You're out of your mind. You're a maniac. You're maniacal. Something is wrong with you. And then when they see Peter, they're amazed. They're blown away. So the question is, do you believe it? Or are you going to be like those in the room? And here's what, I just want to add this part. Look at verse 24. We'll wrap up here. But the word of God increased and multiplied. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod Agrippa I martyred James, imprisoned Peter with the intention of martyring him as well. His desire was so that the word of God, the gospel, the good news would not spread, so the advancement of Christ's kingdom would not go. And he tried to thwart that by imprisoning them and martyring them. But here's the thing. It can't be stopped. No ruler, no president, no mayor, no governor can stop it. And here's the thing I want to share with you as you pray out of your mind prayers. Connect it to two things. God's glory, and we use that word glory a lot, doxa in the Greek, kabod in the Hebrew. Hebrew means weighty. Doxa means like uh, significant or big as well, like a light. Connect it to God's glory, and we use that word glory in church a lot, but I, I just wanna use a word that we understand probably a little bit better. Fame, fame. If God answers this prayer for you, how is God made famous? Or maybe this word, credit. How does God get the credit? Or are you gonna plagiarize and take credit for something God did as if you did it? So he says, how does God get the glory? So as you pray these out of your mind prayers, that if God answered it, you'd be like, oh, nope, couldn't happen, didn't happen. Nah, couldn't happen. Does God get the glory? Does God get the credit? Does God get the fame? Because what Peter does, he says, man, we gotta go tell James, not that James was martyred, but James, a half-brother of Jesus, who took over as leader of the church at Jerusalem after Peter was in prison. He says, you gotta go tell James because James, as pastor of church in Jerusalem, is gonna tell everybody. And what's gonna happen? God's gonna get the credit. God's gonna get the fame. 
And as non-believers, and unbelievers hear about it, they're gonna say, wait a minute. Chain on his left, chain on his right, guards at the door, round the clock, and he escaped from prison miraculously? Only God could do that. The second one is gospel. Gospel, the spreading of the gospel. So how does God get the glory? How does God get the fame and credit? But secondly, how does the gospel get advanced? How do people hear about the good news of Jesus Christ? Does Jesus get the credit? And I just wanna say this as we pray here in a little bit, that our access to God, Hebrews 4 says we have this access now to the throne room, not because of anything that we've done, but because of Jesus Christ, amen? So if you've not placed your faith in Christ and trusted the good news of the gospel, you have no access to God the Father. So he says, how does the gospel spread? And verse 24 says, through all this, through these prayers, the gospel, the word continued to advance. But you know what? Sadly, for many of us, it's not the glory and the gospel that we pray our prayers. It's our own comfort and convenience. If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. We pray, God, I'm sick. I don't want to be sick. God, I can't pay these bills. I want to be able to pay these bills. I want a life of comfort and convenience. Rather than saying, God, if you answer this prayer and you provide for my family, I don't know how we're going to make it this month. We've got more bills than money, than paychecks. God, only you get the credit for this. And God, as people come and say, man, I don't know how you did that. You were unemployed. You had this. And you say, God did this. And can I tell you about this, God, and how you can have a relationship with him? So it's the gospel and God's glory. I was teaching on this. We were starting a prayer ministry. So being here tonight reminds me of the church I pastored in Houston, Bayou City Fellowship. It looks just like this, um, auditorium-wise, and just the size of it and kind of where we were set. But we were in a praying church. We didn't have prepare. And so I started the year, I said, let's fast and pray. We began to do that. We began to have regular weekly prayer meetings. And at this prayer meeting one time, we had our staff and some of our elders kind of rotate through leading it. It was my turn to lead. We met, I think, on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. or Thursday morning at 6 a.m. before people went to work. And so I said, hey, we're going to look at Acts 12. And I said the exact same thing. Out of your mind prayers, like, we're going to pray these things. And so then I said, now, I want you to write down two or three prayers that if God answered those prayers, you would say, Ah, no, no, God couldn't have done that. No, 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 couldn't have happened. I know I prayed that, and I believe that God is able to do that, but uh, I don't think if he answered it, it would actually like, it. yeah, I don't think he'd do it. So then everyone wrote these prayers down, and I remember this one guy in particular because, and Tara knows who I'm talking about, he was just huge. He was gigantic, former bodybuilder. He was now a financier, an investor guy, and he says, and then so I said, if you, if you are courageous enough, would you share what kind of what, God is putting on your heart to pray about, that if God answered that prayer, you'd be like, ah, never gonna happen. Not, couldn't have happened. And he says, I had a really traumatic childhood, really traumatic childhood, very traumatic. And because of that, my dad and I are totally like ostracized. We don't talk to each other. We have no relationship at all. Now, here's the sad part. He says, I'm a Christian and my dad's a Christian. But he said, you know what? We're never gonna be reconciled. It's never gonna happen. At the time, he and his wife didn't have any kids, and I talked about how like, often having grandkids can maybe start the reconciliation thing, but he had no kids at all. And so he said, that's my prayer. My impossible prayer, out of your mind prayer, is that God reconcile me to my dad. That's my thing. 
And so everyone's like, okay, so we prayed. And I wrote that in my little prayer journal. And maybe every two or three weeks, I'd go to him and say, hey, I'm praying for you and your dad to be reconciled. I said, what's going on? And he said, funny thing happened. I was praying the other day and the spirit told me, rather than waiting on your dad to reach out to you, you reach out to your dad. And so I did. And I said, okay, what happened? He says, we had lunch. And God did something already in my dad's heart that I just can't explain. And I kid you not, from that point on, and I can't remember who they are. These guys, there's like two swole guys always coming to our church. They always sat in the front right here. And I always felt safe. Like even if I said something, I'd be like, get them, right? They, They were just like bodyguards to me. About two weeks after that, every Sunday, there was that guy, his other big buff brother-in-law, and this guy's mom and dad sitting right next to him. God reconciled that relationship. He reconciled that relationship that just maybe two or three months before that, this guy says, God answered that. I know it's never gonna happen, but I'm gonna pray anyway. I know it's never gonna happen, but I'm gonna pray anyway and see what happens. So how can you pray as we look at these five C's? Christ, your core relationship for the church, for your career, for community. These out of your mind prayers that if God answered, that you'd be like, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Brent, you're out of your mind. God couldn't have answered that prayer. No way. What are those out of your mind prayers that you can pray boldly, flexing those prayer muscles, stretching yourself, saying, God, I'm praying this. And can I be honest, God, in the back of my mind, I know you're not gonna answer it, but I'm gonna pray it anyway because you're able Japan is a very hard missionary country. It's a very homogenous culture. So it's a Buddhist Shinto culture. So if you become a Christian, you're no longer homogenous. You kind of stick out, and that's not proper. The other thing they struggle with is this concept of grace, that if you have a boss and that boss gives you a Christmas gift, right, nothing attached to it, it's expected that you would get him a gift or her a gift of equal value or more. It's expected And so when you share the gospel in Japan and you say, Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 23, the free gift of salvation, they're like, oh, awesome. We understand sacrifice. But then they say, so what do I need to do? And they're like, just trust the Lord. Trust and believe. Trust him. Okay, and and give money, be a good person, do something. No, just believe. So Japanese people have a hard time grasping the gospel. So I become a Christian my junior in high school, and, and I know this is hard to picture, but I had dreadlocks, I smoked weed. I was like that typical, stereotypical California kid. I was wearing uh, basketball shorts or surf shorts all the time, flip-flops, tank top. When it got cold, I have a hoodie. That was my, my wardrobe. Radical conversion. From that, I remember that day, I, I shared the gospel with my mom, my brother, my dad. And from that point on, every day, I began to pray for God to save my mom, dad, and my brother. Every day. And I knew it was one of those, in the back of my mind, it's never gonna happen. They're Japanese, homogenous culture. Can I say this too? My brother's openly gay, married to his partner. I'm like, he's anti-Jesus, anti-Christian because of all the stuff, the rhetoric going on. But I just prayed every single day. I remember uh, when I was in seminary, I had a friend who was a missionary in Japan, and he had a Japanese Bible, so he gave it to me, and so I came home, and I gave my mom a Bible in Japanese, and I'd ask her on occasion, hey, are you reading that Bible, and she said, no, I haven't read the Bible at all, 
But I kept praying and praying that God would save my mom, my dad, and my brother every day. Even though back in my mind, I'm like, ah, if it happened, I really wouldn't believe it. So then in uh, San Antonio, we were there. I remember my mom came to visit for Christmas or maybe Thanksgiving. And I said, mom, have you ever thought about maybe retiring out here in Texas? It's much more affordable in California. She said, no, I've got lots of friends in California. I'm gonna stay out there. A week later, she says, you know what? I've decided I'm gonna move to Texas. I got a realtor, I'll see you in two weeks. So she moved out to Texas. And when she did, a few years later, she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of cancer. And so she moved in with us for a while, lived with us, we cared for her. And then she said, hey, I wanna be independent still. I'm able to do stuff. So she got her own little senior living apartment. And you preface this as well, in Japan, there's a lot of racist stereotypes still. And so back when I was a single man, if I had told my mom, hey, I got engaged to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, she'd have been like, that's awesome. You hit the jackpot, trophy wife. If I married a Japanese woman too, she'd have been like, that's awesome. Then after that, there's all the other like ethnic groups and races. At the very bottom are African and African-American women. So I remember very vividly when I told my mom, hey, I was dating my wife, we're engaged, she was against us getting married. So my mom calls me, I'm at work, and she says, Icky, um, I got a cold, I'm not feeling well, I'm really weak, can you come over and just maybe get me some chicken soup and some Tylenol, whatever, and get me back to health? And I said, hey mom, you know, I love you, and I'm just in the middle of a lot of meetings right now that I can't move around. And I said, but Tara gets off work, like literally in five minutes, I'll call her, and you mind if she comes over? She says, yeah, that'd be great, please ask her to come. And I said, great. So Tara, I call her, she says, yeah, of course I'll be there. So she goes to care for my mom who's got this cold. Again, she's battling cancer as well. So uh, a few hours later, I come home, Tara comes home as well, and she said, yeah, your mom is like really weak. She's got a cold with a cancer, it's made her even more weak. She said, tomorrow, after I get off work, I'm actually gonna just go over there and stay the night to make sure your mom's okay. So the next day she goes after work, stays with my mom, she has like a change of clothes and some, uh, her other stuff to stay the night. We talk, probably around 9.30 at night, we're calling on the phone, praying together, we hang up. I go to bed, she goes to bed. I wake up the next morning and there's like three or four texts from my wife. A couple of voicemails, my wife and my daughter's on there as well. So I look at this text and, and I felt like, Peter, am I dreaming? Because I'm just waking up and it says, your mom got saved last night. So I called my wife and I said, tell me what happened. And she said, your mom was so weak that I literally had to put her in bed. She couldn't even sit up and I had to put the covers on her. I go in the living room. I'm getting ready to sleep on the sofa. I've got some, something I'm watching on YouTube or on the television. And around midnight, I hear your mom crying and calling out my name. Tara, Tara, Tara. So I go in there thinking maybe she needs some medicine or something happened. And she's sitting straight up. Now, this is a woman who couldn't even sit up. She's sitting straight up in bed. And Tara says, what? What's going on? What happened? What do you need? And my mom says, I just had a dream. And Tara says, what did you dream? And she said, I saw Jesus in this dream. And Tara said, what did Jesus tell you? And so, like a typical Japanese, she's holding on to Buddhism and Shinto, to ancestor worship, just holding on. And she said, Jesus told me to let go. 
And so my wife said, are you ready to let go? And my mom said, yes, I'm ready to let go. So my wife, the one that my mom was opposed to me marrying, shares the gospel with her. And right there in my mom's bedroom, my mom places her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm reading this text and listening to this call saying, this is impossible. You are out of your mind. This can't happen. I drive to my mom's house, and you all have seen it before. My mom's countenance, her face was different. She had radiant joy that I'd never seen before because she was a new creature in Christ. And I remember my wife said, hey, are you ready to get baptized and maybe even share your testimony? And my mom said, I still feel a little weak from the cold. Maybe next weekend, next Sunday I'll go. And normally when I would leave my mom's house, I'd say, mom, can I pray for you? But this time my mom said, will you pray for me? So I prayed with her. And this is the out of your mind part as well. A few days later, I've got a group of church planners I've been coaching. And so I'm teaching them on preaching and evaluating their preaching. And so whenever I do that, I put my phone away. I wanna focus on teaching and listening to their messages. After the class is over, I look on my phone and again, there's these weird text messages and voicemails. And one of the voicemails was from the county sheriff where my mom's senior living apartment was. I called them back and the sheriff or the deputy said, hey, we regret to inform you that we found your mom had passed away in her sleep. The pest control guy came to her apartment due to pest control. They found her unresponsive. We suspect no foul play at all. It looks like she died peacefully in her sleep. Four days after she trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, my mom went home to be at the Lord. So friends, family, I'll call y'all family, we're family. What is that out of your mind prayer that you need to pray? Is it for that prodigal child that's you saying they're never gonna come back? Is it for that friend or family member that you've been praying for begging God to save them? That you're like, they're atheists, they're agnostic, they hate Christians that you're praying for. Have you been out of work for months, maybe even years, and you're like, I am never going to get a job. I might as well just, just throw in the towel. What is that out of your mind prayer that you need to say during this prepare week, I'm gonna write it down. And yes, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking it's never gonna happen, but I'm just gonna pray and ask and beg God anyway. I'm gonna stretch and flex my prayer muscles begging God to do it because I believe he's able. Let's pray. God, I pray now for us. Would your spirit place in our hearts and our minds those maniacal, maniac prayers that if you were to answer and that knock came to our, at our door, that job offer was slid across the table, that loved one texts us and says, I trusted Jesus Christ, that we would say, oh, I don't believe it. Out of your mind. God, will we pray those prayers tonight? begging you. And God, will we pray those prayers, not for our fame and our namesake, 
But God, for your glory, your fame, you'll get the credit that will rush to tell and testify, God did this. So we can share the good news, the gospel, the life-changing, life-altering, destiny-altering, good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, so that Christ and his kingdom would advance. And Master, we pray all this as humble, dependent children in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.